Our psalm this morning can be found in Psalm 48. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled. They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there. Anguish as a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. We have thought on, our, on your steadfast love, O, o God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of, Jeru of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. Our epistle lesson this morning is found in 1 Corinthians. We're reading from chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. Let's pray. As we gather around this word this morning, we do give thanks to you, God, and we rejoice that you have revealed yourself through apostles and prophets to us that we can know you. In our own sinful and stained ways, we would be lost and groping about but you have condescended and you have given yourself to us clearly. And so, Lord, we ask that you will speak this morning, for your servants are listening. Amen. Over the next months leading to the season of Advent, we will read and work through this larger epistle of the Apostle Paul called 1 Corinthians. It is a long and fascinating letter written by Paul to a church that he actually established and planted in the wealthy and prominent trade city of Corinth. 
Corinth is an interesting city, much like cities that we would know today. It was at a crossroads. It was a major cultural center with religious temples and Olympic-like games and also significant trade. And so it was a city filled with all kinds of fascinating religious views and cultural opinions and different practices. And in Corinthians, what we find is the Apostle Paul writing to a specific responses to address specific concerns. We find out that he has two sources for those concerns. The first is that the Corinthians themselves had written Paul a letter, and chapter 7 will note that, that they wrote to him about certain things that were contested in their congregation. And so Paul is responding to that list that they sent him. And then also, Paul had received some visitors from Chloe's people. You find this later in chapter 1, where some people had come to Paul and given him a report because things were not right. But what Paul does in this letter is that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he addresses very practical concerns. The very practical concerns of the church. There were all kinds of issues exploding in the Corinthian congregation. And Paul says that the resurrection applies to absolutely everything going on in their midst. Those real practical problems. We're going to enumerate these and work through these in the months ahead, but just consider some of them. There were divisions around personalities and leaders that we learn about in chapter 1. In chapter 2 and 3, you see that there was some boasting by these personalities and superiority complexes. You arrive in chapter 5 and 6, and you see that there's rank sexual immorality, things that Paul says the pagans didn't even approve of, and not only were they allowed, they were tolerated. In chapter 6, you also learn about lawsuits taking place in the Roman civic courts between fellow believers. Chapter 7, husbands and wives were not being faithful to one another in all kinds of different ways. In chapter 8, there were certain members of the congregation who were eating food sacrificed to idols. And they thought nothing was wrong with it, per se. Chapter 11, you find out that there's class divisions between the rich and the poor. And the rich were not concerned for their brothers who had very little. And they were not concerned for the least of these. Chapters 12 through 14 is like a novel out of the American church. There's worship wars taking place. They were battling with one another about how to appropriately worship God. And in chapter 15, you find out that there are some teachers, perhaps in the Sunday schools or perhaps in the pulpits, who were declaring that the resurrection had already taken place and there was no future resurrection of the dead. What a church! Who wants to sign up for that revitalization project? So what is happening in Corinth? The Apostle Paul plants the church, and then shortly after, this letter was probably written between 53 and 55. This is only a few years removed. Things are all kinds of compromised, and there's these contradictions and confusions taking place. But what we see in front of us, and we'll tease it out over the months ahead, is that most of these problems were just values imported from the Greco-Roman environment. And those values went unchallenged, and they did not critically think through them. 
in light of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So for many of the Corinthians, it just seemed perfectly natural what was happening in their churches. And any church with any history to it that gets past those first idealistic, romantic days of planting knows just how this happens and just how messy things can get. Christ Church knows this. In 35-some years of history, we certainly have faced our own challenges. But the main question for us is what is to be done about a church that gets so confused and compromised? What is the answer to that? And for most of us, we think that the Apostle Paul needed to regulate, to knuckle down and apply some good old-fashioned guilt to these people and get them back in line. Now, it's important to recognize that Paul will get very brutally honest, and we're going to have some uncomfortable Sundays in the months ahead. It's going to be great. He will knuckle down and get honest, but that's not where he begins. You see, Paul doesn't aim at simply guilting. He wants to produce a godly sorrow. And so where he begins is not with the negative. As a kid, we had the practice of visiting my grandparents, and we would drive up several times a year. They lived about two hours away from my hometown in Henderson, North Carolina. And so we would drive up on a Saturday morning and then depart sometime early evening. But every time that we left, there was a liturgy to our leaving. We would load up in my mom's Caprice Classic, if you remember that blue one with the wood grain down the sides and the rear-facing seat. And all ready to leave, we would back out of the driveway. My grandparents would be there walking to the end of the driveway along with my uncle, and we would roll down the windows and wait for my grandfather. And he would then yell, remember who you are. And we would lean out the windows and we would say, no, you remember who you are. And then he would yell it again and we would be around the corner by that point. I didn't ever really think about what he was saying because it was just something we traditionally did. But what he was calling me and my sister to remember was that we were part of the family and we bore the family's name and we needed to do the family proud. We need to remember what it was to be part of the family. And that is exactly where the Apostle Paul begins with this dysfunctional and corrupt and disturbed congregation. And so despite all the temptations Paul may have faced to just excoriate the congregation and burn the earth, he begins in the positive, calling them to remember who they are in Christ Jesus. And this morning we're going to consider four things that he calls to their remembrance that we will find he develops and presses home over these 16 chapters. First, in verses 1 through 3, we see that the the apostle calls us to remember our God-given identity. That Paul, in what he is trying to accomplish with the Corinthians, is to restore them to their original purpose by restating the dignity that God has assigned to them through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Join me in verse 2 where he says, "...to the church of God that is in Corinth." 
to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. It's interesting how Paul begins the letter because it's slightly different than how he begins some of his other epistles. But he says, the church of God in Corinth. You notice that the church is not of Corinth. The church does not belong to Corinth, but rather there is one church that belongs to God that has a particular geographical location in this Greco-Roman city. Now this is important because the Corinthian Christians were innovating. They were innovating theologically and morally. Whenever the church innovates theologically, there will be moral compromises that follow. And so Paul is reminding them that the church is not their property. That rather there is one church. There is the church of God. That is the one true church. And that church knows no borders. It knows no boundaries. It knows no divisions between ethnicities. That that is the one true church. That it doesn't belong to them. That they don't have the freedom. They don't have the right. They don't have the charter to somehow change what the church believes. And so it's important to recognize that we're part of something much bigger than ourselves. You notice where he goes, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So not only does the church belong to God, that there's one church that belongs to God, but also there is a church that knows no boundaries, that there's no ethnic divisions, that it's universal, it encompasses the world. In fact, it gets bigger than that. It goes throughout history to, inc to include time just beyond our current and present time, that the church is universal. Or we confess it this way in saying the Apostles' Creed that the church is Catholic. The church is one Catholic church. Sometimes people ask, and they're somewhat offended when we say the Apostles' Creed, because we do it every week except for the weeks that we take communion when we say the Nicene Creed. People ask, what does it mean? Are you Roman Catholic? I thought this was a Presbyterian church. And I always try to take the opportunity to explain. We'll look at the little footnote in the bulletin. It explains that the church are, is composed of, the Catholic church is the general or the universal church that is spread throughout the world and throughout time. It's all those who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus. That's what's important. And simply because that word has been misunderstood doesn't mean that we relegate it to the rubbish bin. It doesn't mean that we distance ourselves from it. We are Catholic in that lowercase c sense because we're universal. And the church belongs to all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus. And so Paul is pressing this idea that we are Catholic and we are one. And then he goes further to say that the church is to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Now the word sanctified is an interesting one in the Bible because it possesses two senses. The word sanctified can refer to that process in which God is at work in our lives to transform us into the image of Jesus in which the fruits of the Spirit are born in us. But that is a work of God that unfolds over time. But also the Bible uses the word sanctified in a different way, where it's not so much of an unfolding work of God as it is an act of God. 
Something that God does on our behalf that we cannot do for ourselves. It's something definitive that happens in history. And that is what he says here to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. It's something definitive that God does. It's his work. It's objective. It happens to us. We don't negotiate and participate in it. God simply intervenes on our behalf. And so Paul is announcing to these Christians that they have been sanctified or set apart by Christ Jesus. Something unique has happened to them. That God has intervened and interrupted their lives. It's much like in the Old Testament when a vessel was to be used in the temple. This is where the language comes from that the apostle uses. That things were sanctified. They were set apart from their ordinary and common and profane use to something sacred and special to God. This is what Paul says happened to these Corinthians. Out of their sin, they were sanctified and set apart for God definitively by God's act. And this is what has happened to us. This is who we are. God has done something unthinkable for those who were lost in sins. But then he presses it further. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Now this terminology of saints has come in on hard times. Typically when we see that word, we think of super-Christians. People throughout the history of the church who've done phenomenal things. That's not what Paul means at all here. Rather what he's referring to are the saints, that is those who've been sanctified by Christ Jesus. The saints are all those who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus. This is no special class of Christians, but rather it's those who've been set apart. And perhaps a better translation of the word saints is the holy ones. And you can see the Apostle Paul's logic here. To those sanctified, those set apart to be holy in Christ Jesus, called to be holy together. In other words, Paul is saying that something has happened to you, there is grace given, and now there's a responsibility received. That is always the logic of the gospel. That God has interrupted and intervened in your life, there is grace given, and now there's a responsibility received in which you are to respond to God, in which you answer His call. And this is who the church is. Sanctified, set apart, for God's service and called now to walk in that service. Or as we say in the Nicene Creed, we are one holy church, sanctified by Christ Jesus. We notice one last piece to this God-given identity. In verse 1, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. It's interesting here that Paul indicates his office. It's a unique and special office in the church. The apostles. The apostles are witnesses of the resurrection. That is, eyewitnesses of it. They held a unique authority in the foundation and history of the church that in Ephesians, Paul tells us that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That they saw Jesus and touched him and conversed with him. And that they received revelation from God. That otherwise we'd be fumbling about not knowing the true God unless God had given Himself to be known through these men. And He did so. That that is what Paul is claiming here. 
is that the church is built on the apostolic foundation. Those who witnessed Jesus and then who oversaw and wrote the New Testament canon that brings to completion the Old Testament canon. But what's important for us is our God-given identity is apostolic. Yes, we're one holy, apostolic, and Catholic church. That is who we are. This is what the grace of God has made us to be. And friends, it is critical for us to think through that. That the church is given an identity. It's not given a blank to fill in the way that it wants to. And yet the church situated in places like Corinth or Jacksonville or New York or wherever we happen to find ourselves is tempted to culturally compromise itself and to write its own check to say, this is who we're going to be. We're going to determine this for ourselves. Independent, autonomous, self-determined. And Paul is saying in these very opening introductory words that the church does not have the right to do that. That you've been given a charter. You've been given an identity by God. And we are to live into that. Now the second thing that Paul calls us to remember in verses 4-6 through we see that the apostle calls us to remember that everything we have is a gift of God's grace. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. The Corinthians, as we'll see about this congregation, were a proud bunch. Paul tells us that not all of them were wise and not all of them were well-born, but we do understand from that statement that some of them were. And some of them were extremely gifted, evidently, in the pulpit. And they had wisdom and they had understanding. They had strong personalities and leaders who were chopping things up. There were opinions, all kinds of things taking place. But the Corinthians boasted in their gifting by God. They prided themselves in this. And you see that Paul here in verse 4, interesting, because the very things that Paul thanks God for the Corinthian congregation, they had turned these very things against him. That some of these leaders were criticizing Paul in two directions. And the criticisms were about speech and knowledge. The two things that Paul celebrates that they had been gifted in and enriched by God. That they had been enriched in all speech and they had been enriched in all knowledge or wisdom. And those two very things Paul manages to give thanks to God for. Because even though those gifts had been derailed and they had soured, he still knew that they came from God. And what was happening is they were importing certain issues from the Greco-Roman city into the church and that was now running unchecked. That they had taken those gifts and gone their own direction and were working in their own ends. Now one of the remarkable things about Christ's church is that we do have an intergenerational congregation. That is, inside of one week, 
We can baptize a baby and welcome them into the life of our church. And inside of that same week, we can have a funeral. And that is a wonderful gift. It's a remarkable sign of the grace of unity. See, it doesn't take much grace to have a monochrome congregation where there is only one generation represented. But it takes an incredible amount of grace for old and young to bear with one, one, with one another and how differently they think about things and approach things. And that's what God has given to us. And one of the benefits of having an older generation who's seen a lot of life and a lot of history in the church is that there's a tremendous amount of wisdom accumulated there. And one of the things that I think would just be a great practical application, especially for those younger in our congregation, is to ask our older saints, how have you seen the gifts that God gives to people? How have you seen those gifts sour? How have you seen those used to someone's own ends where they promote themselves and no longer promote Christ and no longer serving the interest of the kingdom? Because friends, it happens. Certainly it's happened here. It's happened in every church at some point. But to ask, how did it happen? How have you seen it? Have you experienced it yourself? How did you recover from that? What did you do about it? Friends, everything we have is a gift of grace. Paul reminds us of that. And we're not to boast in the gifts that God gives to us. We're rather to use them to serve Him. We're not to hold them to ourselves. We're to give them to the world freely as we give thanks to God. Third piece that Paul reminds us here in verse 7, the apostle reminds us that we've not arrived so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. That's why they were enriched. As you await for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting here that Paul has to bring in this future note, a horizon event that has not yet been realized. And he's telling the church that in all of their wisdom and in all of their boasting and in all of their pride, they need to recognize that they've not yet arrived that Corinth thinks they are pretty much the ideal and model church that everyone needs to follow, so much so that they are theologically innovating and leading the church in some new direction. And Paul says, no, you need to realize that you've not yet arrived because we're all waiting, all who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus from all these different nations and all these different ethnicities and all these different cities that we're awaiting the revealing of the Son of God when He returns to make all things right. And it is important to note that the Corinthians, some at least, were saying that there's no resurrection of the dead. And so everything that they thought God was going to give to them, they already had. And Paul is putting an emphatic no on that. That if all God gives you, you have today, then you are lost. You don't know what the Christian inheritance is. Because it's so much fuller, and chapter 15 will develop this. That the Christian inheritance is not just about what we receive now. And it's not just about going to heaven when we die. As great as that is. And the saints who are gathered then around God's presence. But the great big promise of Christianity is that there is a world made right. 
that Jesus returns to this world and raises dead bodies and pulls their dust back together and brings us into life in a newly formed and created world in which it is as it always, as it always has intended to be. That's the big promise. And so there is always this check on our pride that when we think we're really getting it and we think we're doing things right, that the Apostle Paul reminds us that we've not arrived. There will always be half measures in the church. There will always be failures. There will always be sin on this side of things. There will always be critiques of the church. That is just part of it because we've not arrived. No strategic plan gets you there. No pastor gets you there. No great worship service gets you there. Only the revelation of our Lord Jesus when He returns. Final thing that Paul reminds us of, though, in verses 8 and 9, we see that he calls us to remember that God is faithful. Says the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, Paul says that he will sustain you to the end, and that is the translation that the ESV uses. And perhaps the old NASB, the one that I grew up on, catches the nuance of this a little bit better, but they use the word confirm because the word carries a legal connotation. That our Lord Jesus will confirm us to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That that is what God's work is for us now, is He will confirm us to the end. He has confirmed us now, setting us apart. He has justified us and declared that we are right despite all of our sins and all of our failures. And then despite of our ongoing sins and our ongoing failures, it is He who will confirm you. He will establish you guiltless because you can't do that for yourself. The church can't work up its energy and get there. That this is what God alone can do for us through Jesus. That He establishes us guiltless because of His death on our behalf. The one righteous one who went and suffered on our behalf and that He was raised because He is vindicated and He had no sin, but He absorbed our death. And now we are in Him. And God counts us righteous as well. That is how he looks on his church. And Paul exclaims here that God is faithful. That God does not forsake us. That that which he has confirmed, that which he has declared, he will hold to. And that we always have to remember that. That that is the ground of our standing in front of God. We can get lost in our gifting. We can get lost in our success. We can even get lost in our failures. And so this is a decisive word, both against human pride and human despair. Driving home that the one foundation of a guiltless standing in front of God that will confirm us all the way to the end is the spiritual fellowship that we've been called into with our Lord Jesus. His death and His resurrection being the foundation. That's what we need to remember. 
This is what Paul will now develop over 16 chapters. How the death and resurrection of Jesus applies to the most practical and messy circumstances that afflict churches. Because those circumstances are real. For those around long enough, you know that church can be a messy, messy place. And what do you do in light of that? Do you become cynical? Do you remove yourself from it? That's not what Paul does. He calls us to remember who we are. To remember that God-given identity. To remember that our gifts are of grace. To remember that we've not arrived. To remember that God is faithful. That's what He calls us to. And so remember who you are. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You will help us to remember. To remember all that You have done for us on our behalf that we are one holy, Catholic, universal church called together by our Lord Jesus. May we know your great purposes for us, that we have been sanctified in order to pursue holiness together. May we give thanks together. May we rejoice in the gifts that you have entrusted to us. And may we not run off in our own directions. May we not innovate in theology and ethics. May we remember that we've never arrived, that you're constantly at work. Keep us humble. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to remember that you are the faithful and true God who has confirmed us in Christ. You have established us guiltless now, and you will do so on that great last day as well, that you will not forsake us. You will not turn on us as we look to Jesus in faith. So help us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.